Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Bill Rochelle, ABI's editor-at-large and the author of the Rochelle's Daily Wire, where we write up important new bankruptcy opinions immediately. Last week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in Manhattan handed down a very important decision in the wake of the General Motors bankruptcy. That decision deals with due process in the bankruptcy context and also with the important question of the ability of a bankruptcy court to cut off claims for successor liability in a bankruptcy sale. The expert on our podcast today is Professor Stephen J. Lubin. He occupies the Harvey Washington Wiley Chair in Corporate Governance and Finance and Business Ethics at the Seton Hall Law School. He is an internationally recognized expert in corporate finance and government, corporate restructuring, and distressed debt. In addition, he is a columnist for the New York Times Deal Book. Indeed, Professor Lubin has written a story for the Deal Book talking about this very decision from the Second Circuit. Indeed, if you go to the ABI website, you will also find our discussion on the RDW concerning the Second Circuit decision. In a few minutes, Professor Lubin is going to tell us about what the Second Circuit held in its decision on July 13. But before we get to that, I want to describe for you what happened in the bankruptcy court, which led to the Second Circuit decision. As you will recall, General Motors held a Chapter 11 petition in June of 2009 when it was basically flat broke and actually would have liquidated and gone out of business without financing and help from the federal government. Within 40 days of the Chapter 11 filing, the bankruptcy judge approved a sale of all of the assets to what we will call New GM. New GM was a company at the time 60% owned by the federal government. Otherwise, it was really essentially the same company, the same plants, the same employees, the same management, the same products. When New GM bought the business, it agreed to assume responsibility for only certain specified types of claims, such as warranty claims, accidents occurring after the sale, and lemon law claims. Otherwise, it was a typical bankruptcy sale, free and clear of claims, thus broadly immunizing new GM from claims of successor liability. You will also recall that in early 2014, oh, five years after the sale was approved, new GM initiated a recall of millions of vehicles. In large part, the recall dealt with cars where there were defective ignition switches. These defective switches would cause the cars to shut off unexpectedly. In addition to losing control of the car, shutting down the ignition system would also disable airbags so they would not deploy in the event of an accident. This, of course, resulted in uh, a good number of accidents, injuries, and deaths. 
As a result of the disclosure of the defect, which had not been disclosed, GM was hit with a deluge of lawsuits. New GM responded by filing a motion uh, to enforce the, let's call it, free and clear sale order and bar those claims based upon the ignition switch defects. Bankruptcy Judge Robert Gerber, who since then has uh, left the bench, issued his ruling in 2015. He concluded, as a matter of fact, that the ignition switch claims were known before the sale, but that GM had not given notice to purchasers of those cars. He said that even though there was a denial of due process, the owners of those cars suffered no prejudice because he said he would have approved the sale in any, by the way, who better than Judge Gerber to know that he would have approved the sale even had the owners of those cars objected to the sale. He ruled in the process that new GM could be liable only for its own wrongful conduct occurring after the sale, such as failure to disclose the defect sooner. He also held that pre-closing accident claims and claims for economic loss were barred by the sale order. So that's where we left it before the direct appeal to the Second Circuit. Professor Lubin, would you like to tell us what it is that the Second Circuit held? Good thing, Bill. Um, so the Second Circuit basically four steps. It first addressed the question of whether the bankruptcy court had jurisdiction to enforce the sale order, because some of the plaintiff's attorneys were arguing that the bankruptcy court was not the proper forum for deciding whether or not the sale order applied these cases. Uh, the Second Circuit affirmed Judge Gerber's decision that he had authority to interpret and enforce his own order. So in the next step of the Second Circuit's case, it then addresses the question of whether or not a 363 sale order can affect uh, successor liability claims, whether it can be, whether a sale can be free and clear of those. And the court ultimately held that a 363 sale could be free and clear of successor liability claims. It did this um, in an analysis which basically connects section 363F to the definition of claim, um, which I find a little bit troubling or a little bit confusing, mostly because I think they are perhaps confusing the general use of the word interest in various places in the code with the use of the term interest in property in 363F. Nonetheless, they probably get to the right result and, and decide that by and large, a federal bankruptcy court can sell assets free and clear of successor, state law successor liability claims. Then the third step of the opinion was to address the due process issues. And here they partially agreed with Judge Gerber, but disagreed with Judge Gerber on probably the most significant issue. So they agreed with Judge Gerber that publication notice alone wasn't sufficient to notify these plaintiffs of their potential claims. Um, GM clearly, at least lower level GM management, clearly had known about these issues for a long time 
and yet provided no actual notice, only publication notice at best to these plaintiffs. Um, so they were in agreement with Judge Gerber that there was a problem, a due process problem here. Where they disagreed with Judge Gerber was on the question of prejudice. Um, the court sort of dodged the issue of whether or not prejudice was actually required, but said in this case, given GM's conduct, basically the benefit of the doubt had to go to the plaintiffs, and so the plaintiffs' um, arguments had to be heard. And in other words, uh, whether or not prejudice was a requirement was not really relevant because even if prejudice was requirement was a requirement here of a due process claim, the court said um, these plaintiffs could could show prejudice. And then the fourth piece of the opinion, they also overturn Judge Gerber's decision that the case was essentially equitably moot. Um, Judge Gerber had basically said that because the GM uh, liquidating had already paid out a lot of its funds, um, that there was no remedy that could be provided to these plaintiffs' attorneys. So that was another reason to, to dismiss most of these, these claims. Um, the Second Circuit said that, well, that's an issue he, Judge Gerber didn't have to reach, and so they overturned him on that, on that point. So essentially, um, there's an agreement here by the Second Circuit that a 363 sale order can strip off Successor liability claims from a debtor's assets, but not if there's not adequate notice. Well, let me ask you this, Professor. Uh, what does this mean in terms of the types of lawsuits with respect to the ignition, ignition switches for which new GM can be liable? Well, I mean, one of the issues here is, is that this particular appeal only dealt with the sale order. Um, the basic rule still remains, of course, right, that a purchaser of assets, even outside of bankruptcy, typically does not also purchase liabilities, right? So these plaintiffs are going to have to make out their successor liability claims and show that they have a valid successor liability claim under state law. Um, and only then can they possibly bring a claim against new GM. Otherwise, you know, it's going to remain against old GM. Okay, so let's assume that the plaintiffs in the uh, multi-district class actions are going to be able to establish a valid claim for successor liability. What types of claims can new GM be liable for? For instance, uh, economic loss, which is a type of a claim that the bankruptcy court had cut off. Yeah, possibly. Uh, I mean, again, it's going to be a question of what's permissible under state law, under successor liability theories. Certainly personal injury, right? Products liability, there's several states, New Jersey and California are the two big ones that allow products liability claims to go against asset buyers. Now, that's not necessarily economic loss claims, right? But actual personal injury cases. Economic loss claims, on the other hand, you know, it's going to be a real question about whether those are, are viable even under state law. All right. Well, listen, let me, let me ask you what I think is the $64 question that is really pertinent for bankruptcy practitioners and buyers of companies out of bankruptcy. Right. Let us assume that there is a 363 sale 
in which the debtor does not disclose the existence of certain claims that it knows about. And let us further assume that there is a purchaser of the business, free and clear, at a 363 sale, who is guiltless. In other words, the purchaser does not know about these undisclosed claims. If later it turns out that these claims did in fact exist, were known and identifiable, what does this mean for the purchaser? Can a purchaser, an innocent purchaser in this example, be liable, assuming there is liability, as a successor to the seller? Well, you're pushing on the most interesting and perhaps troubling part of the opinion because the Second Circuit does make something of the fact that new GM was, first of all, backed by the U.S. and Canadian governments, um, so unlike the typical purchaser, and second of all, uh, perhaps closer related to that first point, was essentially just a continuation of, of old GM. Um, and if, so the question is, how much do we make of that, you know, the fact that the Second Circuit noted that, it certainly could be a reason to distinguish this case in the future. However, Professor, uh, GM is no longer government-owned. Oh, no. That's the government share has been sold. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And so certainly the implications of the Second Circuit's uh, uh, decision now are going to be felt by the GM shareholders. Um, and so whether that's a, sort of a, an intellectually valid distinction that the Second Circuit is drawing, I think is, is certainly open to question. But um, because they raise that issue and because most buyers will not be in that case, it is certainly a way to distinguish this case. Um, so it leaves, the, it leaves the issue a little bit unclear. Um, certainly plaintiff's attorneys are going to argue that this case is you know, squarely on point. Well, of course, also, by the way, and this is an important distinction from the hypothetical I gave you, in the GM case, because management before and after bankruptcy was the same, new GM management was actually responsible for the failure to disclose. And that would not be the same in a situation where you had an innocent third-party purchaser. But I gotta say, Professor, I'm still concerned that the denial of due process might have repercussions and result in liability for even an innocent purchaser. Is that possi a possibility or does the innocence of a purchaser uh, make it an entirely different case and a different result? Well, you know, I think you're, you're putting your thumb right on, on the heart of the issue. At the very least, this opinion creates uncertainty, which is probably going to have an effect on 363 sales, uh, at least at the margin there. Um, because it, it is un, unclear from this opinion whether there's a potential for some unforeseen liability by the buyer. Um, and, and the, you know, nervous buyers obviously are going to rea react accordingly and adjust prices or, or worse yet, ask for escrow, neither of which is great from the, the debtor's estate perspective. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, uh, this decision could have some effect on the prices in bankruptcy sales. Let me ask you this, Professor. Was this Second Circuit decision one that you were expecting 
or were you surprised? Well, I, I, I'm not shocked by the, the decision. I think it certainly would have been, uh, I certainly expected actually Judge Gerber's order to be upheld. Um, but it, not totally shocking because it struck me as a sort of a, a close call on this issue because GM, as you pointed out in your introduction, GM had known about these issues for a very long time and really, you know, had had not acted in, well, had not acted in good faith by, um, by, by trying to hide these issues. And so I think that made the the due process uh, decision sort of a very close call. Well, uh, let me uh, ask you a uh, somewhat related question, Professor. One of the important holdings that you talked about was the notion that a bankruptcy sale free and clear can cut off state law claims for successor liability. Do you think that's an open and shut conclusion, just as the Second Circuit made it? Or is there some little ray of doubt? I uh, personally, you know, have, have argued that, um, you know, in, in, in different contexts that uh, 363 sales can shut off successor liability, but it certainly is an issue that is open to some debate. Um, I think, you know, obviously in an ideal world with an ideal Congress, uh, 363 would re be revised to expressly address that issue, which, you know, now it's sort of more uh, by by implication, which obviously leaves it open to some debate. How much, by the way, do you think uh, this case really turned on the facts? In other words, was it sui generis, or do you think even under less egregious facts that the result would have been the same? You know, to some degree, I think this case is sui generis. Um, you have the fact, you know, that this, the Second Circuit apparently found it important that there was a government buyer behind this new GM. Um, that obviously is not going to arise in your typical case. There's also, you know, just this huge and long-term ongoing non-disclosure by GM. I think that the one clear lesson from this case is, is that if you want to have a very good, clean 363 sale, you really have to push your client, um, especially on the debtor side, to make sure that they're disclosing everything that they need to be disclosing. Well, it sounds like, in part at least, this is uh, an example of the old adage that hard cases can make bad law, but I'm not suggesting thereby that this is bad law given a rather egregious violation of uh, due process requirements. By the way, as we were talking about, or as you talked about, uh, Professor, uh, the bankruptcy judge, without any doubt whatsoever, said that he would have ruled the same way and cut off these claims even had he known uh, about them, and even if objections had been lodged. Where does the Second Circuit get off in uh, saying that the bankruptcy judge's own conclusion is wrong. Yeah, well, you know, they, the Second Circuit basically said that that was speculative. I, th I think it's it's undoubtedly right, especially given the particular context that the GM case happened in. 
I mean, we were still in the midst of the financial crisis that had started in 2008. There was really no market for the GM assets at that point in time and no other source of dip financing for General Motors. So they, you know, the, the Treasury and the Canadian government's offer was pretty much the only game in town. Um, so I, I think he, he's absolutely right. I think it also sort of underlines the point that I made earlier that you that disclosure is key here, right? Because if GM had disclosed these these lawsuits or this this flaw with this ignition switch and implemented a quick fix to that problem, you know, during the bankruptcy case, I think it's very likely it could have cut off its liability for these claims. Well, of course, uh, what's important here is, as a matter of law as well as fact, is that GM held off disclosure of this defect for nigh on to five years after the sale, so that there would have been far fewer claims had GM acknowledged this deficiency many years earlier. Uh, this is a case, by the way, that ain't going to go away and is not going to be decided anytime soon. There is a gigantic multi-district class action that has been assigned to District Judge Furman in Manhattan. And uh, I won't say the case is moving at a glacial pace, but it is a gigantic litigation with dozens of lawyers, dozens if, none, if not hundreds of, of plaintiffs. And just a couple of days after the Second Circuit's opinion, uh, Judge Furman handed down a decision knocking out a lot of the uh, plaintiffs, class action plaintiffs' claims in the, uh, uh, in the multi-district suit. And by the way, folks, you've got to keep in mind that the plaintiffs did not only make claims based directly upon the ignition switch defect, there were claims for by or on behalf of people who purchased GM cars that had no defects whatsoever. And the plaintiffs were arguing that GM's failure to disclose here and the, uh, these defects depreciated the brand value and therefore depreciated the value of their otherwise defect-free GM cars. And it's claims like that that District Judge Furman is now dismissing but there is a whole lot more litigation practice still in the future. So, uh, Professor, do you have any guess about how long we might have to wait before we either have a final uh, settlement or resolution of the claims arising from the ignition switch problems? Oh, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a products liability expert. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the plaintiff's attorneys have thrown the kitchen sink at GM. So at the very least, there's going to be some period of time where the district judge has to sort of narrow down this case to a core of viable claims, if there are any. And then once we see what that core looks like, then we might have a better idea about how quickly this might settle. Well, and of course, by the way, too, uh, even after that happens, uh, assuming it's not a settlement but judgments, it'll go to the Second Circuit. And frankly, then it's very possible that the Second Circuit is going to uh, refer uh, or certify some of these state law issues to the state Supreme Courts. So maybe a while before we know how it all ends up. 
Well, I'll tell you what, I'm afraid that's all the time that we have uh, today. I thank Professor Lubin for joining us, and I thank you for listening. There are more than 180 audio podcasts available on the ABI website, which is abi.org slash podcasts. And remember to sign up for Rochelle's Daily Wire, which is also on the homepage of abi.org. Until next time, this is Bill Rochelle saying good day.